I want to begin this morning by um, looking at a verse that we looked at last Sunday morning. I'll read it for you. It says this, Yet among the mature we do impart wisdom, although it is not a wisdom of this age or of the rulers of this age who are doomed to pass away. But we impart a secret wisdom, a hidden wisdom of God, which God decreed before the ages for our glory. None of the rulers of this age understood this, for if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. Had they understood who Jesus was and what he was about to do, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. Now, who are the rulers of this age? Well, clearly, as Luke says in Acts 4, it was Herod and Pontius Pilate and the Gentiles and the people of Israel gathered together sovereignly by God to do whatever your hand, Lord, and your plan had predestined to take place. But I also think that it is reasonable to think that Paul is also speaking about Satan and the hosts of hell. Satan, the God of this world, and his demons knew who Jesus was, but they didn't know what he was doing. They didn't know what he was up to. They had no idea. Remember the story in Luke? Jesus casts a demon out of a man in the synagogue in Capernaum. And the demon says, Ha! What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know you who you are. You're the Holy One of God. The demon knew who Jesus was. He just didn't know what Jesus was up to. I don't think Satan did. They didn't understand the mission or the calling or the purpose of the incarnation or the life of Jesus. And it is my firm belief that had Satan known what Jesus was about to accomplish on the cross, he would never have crucified the Lord of glory. Had he knew, known what Jesus was going to accomplish in those six hours, Satan would have done everything that he could have done to keep Jesus off that cross. Why? Because Satan lost that day. And he lost big time. Paul tells us in Colossians chapter 2 that on the cross, God disarmed the rulers and authorities and he put them to open shame, triumphing over them in Christ or in the cross. And so today now we come to the last word of Jesus on the cross. We've looked at the first seven, the last, or the first six. The last is in Luke chapter 23. And if you turn your Bibles to that passage of Scripture, Luke chapter 23, we read this, verse 44. Now it was about the sixth hour, and there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. So from 12 until 3 in the afternoon, the sun went dark. Well, the sun's light faded, and the curtain of the temple was torn in two. Then Jesus called out with a loud voice, saying, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Now, it's important to notice that Jesus was not murdered by the Romans. John 10 tells us that Jesus said, no one takes my life from me. I lay it down on my own accord. The Romans didn't kill Jesus. When the work was finished, when Christ had said, it is finished, the work is accomplished, he yielded up his spirit. That's how Matthew puts it. John says he bowed his head and he gave up his spirit. The work was done. Jesus had finished all that the Father had called him to do. And so in some senses, it's appropriate that the seventh word, almost like a sabbatical word or a Sabbath word, is a word of rest. 
Jesus rested into. Jesus fell asleep into his father. So what had Jesus accomplished in the cross? What had, Satan, what had Jesus done that had Satan known would never have crucified the Lord of glory? So to answer this question, I want us to think about the problem. And this is what well, I did listen to a podcast this morning, Mark, on the way over here. It was R.C. Sproul. He was preaching an Easter sermon, and he apologized for not preaching an ex exegetical exposition of a particular passage of scripture. So even the great R.C. Sproul occasionally kind of pre preached topically, and I'm going to do the same thing this morning. But I want to begin by having us turn to the book of Romans. Romans chapter 5, and I want to look at one verse, and I want to split it up in three, three, in three to, to demonstrate the three problems of sin. It says this, Romans chapter 5, verse 12. Just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, so death spread to all because all sinned. Sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, sin was the consequence, death was the consequence of sin. And so death spread to all men. So I want to look at three solutions that Jesus accomplished on the cross that absolutely destroyed Satan's power. But before I do, let me just take a moment and let's pray together. Father, I pray that in these next few moments, your Holy Spirit would speak to us, that he would encourage our hearts with the truth of the resurrection as we celebrate what Jesus has accomplished on the cross. Use this message, I pray, to impact my life. Use it to impact our lives for your glory, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So to understand the cross, we have to go back and remember that the Apostle Paul speaks about Adam, the first Adam, and then he speaks about Jesus as the last Adam. In Romans chapter 5, Paul calls the first Adam a type or a pattern of the one who was to come. And so to understand the work of the last Adam or the second Adam, the Lord Jesus Christ, we've got to think about the impact of the work of the first Adam. Adam represented us. Adam sinned in the garden. Adam rebelled against God. Adam was disobedient to God. The doctrine of the federal headship of Adam teaches that somehow, some way, we were included in the sin of Adam. Adam rebelled against God. He chose to turn his back on what God had told him to do. And in God's economy, somehow, we were included in the sin of the first Adam. And the consequence of the first Adam falls on us because we were there. We sinned in Adam. We participated with him. Because of his sin, Adam was banished and Eve were banished from the garden into the wilderness and their bodies began to decay and ultimately they died. All of the conflict, the war, the hatred, the anger, the jealousy, the lust, the adultery, the abandonment, theft, famine, brokenness that we see in our world today is a consequence of that one man's sin. And so what did God do? According to the Apostle Paul, he sent the last Adam. He sent the last Adam to undo, to repair what the first Adam had done. And this Adam retraced the steps of that first Adam. The last Adam began his ministry, not in a garden, but in the wilderness, 
where Satan tempted him. He began his ministry in the wilderness, and then for three years, he reintroduced Eden to this planet. Everywhere he went, he ameliorated and lifted the curse of sin. He raised the dead. He healed the sick. He brought peace. He fed the hungry. Eden, all of a sudden, miraculously, was springing up everywhere Jesus went. Cleansing lepers, forgiving sinners. And then, near the end of his ministry, like the first Adam, he had a battle in a garden. Like the first Adam wrestled in the garden, the second Adam, the last Adam, wrestled in the garden. And he was tempted, sorely tempted, and he said to his father, Father, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me. But not my will, but your will be done. And in that, in that moment, Jesus won the battle that Adam lost on our behalf. And then Adam, the second Adam, Christ, went to the cross on our behalf and suffered in our place. And there he did what was necessary to bring lost, sinful people back into relationship with a holy and just God. He took the wrath of God upon himself. He took the wrath of all of Adam's fallen children upon himself and gave us his righteousness in exchange. So just as we were in the first Adam, so too we were in the second Adam in a way that we don't understand and I can't get my head around, but the Bible tells me in Romans chapter 6 that somehow, some way, that old fallen person, that old fallen nature, that old fallen man that was Paul Little was nailed to the cross that day. Christ took me with him that day. As I was in the first Adam, I was in the second Adam. As the sin of the first Adam condemned us, the obedience of the second Adam redeems us. The first Adam forfeited paradise, the second Adam won it back. But here's the wonderful thing. The victory of the last Adam is so much greater than the sin of the first Adam. The first Adam was innocent and had the potential to sin, and he did. The work of the second Adam has produced a people who one day will be fully and completely separate from the influence of sin. And we will never sin. The potential to sin will be completely eradicated. Whereas the first Adam was innocent and had the potential to sin, those who are in Christ will one day be perfect and sin will be absolutely and completely eradicated from our lives forever and ever and ever. The second thing that Jesus did is that he defeated death. Just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin. So Adam and Eve were banished. And as I said, they began the process of dying. But not only did they die physically, in that moment when they were banished from the garden, they were banished from the presence of God, they were estranged from God, and they died spiritually. They died a double death. As soon as sin entered the world, as soon as sin began its, its corrosive, corrupt effect in Adam and Eve's life, their bodies began to deteriorate physically, and ultimately they died. But spiritually, they, their hearts were darkened. They became 
at enmity with God. They were alienated from the life of God. Sin began to have its way with them. And they loved darkness rather than light. They loved sin more than God. They were dead in their sin. But as the disobedience of the first Adam caused this double death, so the obedience of the second Adam, the last Adam, causes a double resurrection. It's important for us to understand this. So how does it work? Go in your Bibles with me to Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2, this is what the apostle says to the Ephesian church. He says, and you were, verse 1, and you were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now working the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. You want a picture of spiritual death, estrangement and alienation from God? You want a picture of enmity, being an, being an enemy of God? There it is. That's who we were. Because of sin, because of Adam's sin that affected us all. We're born doubly dead. We're born to die and we're born estranged from God. We were dead in our trespasses and our sins. But what did God do? What is it that God did that Satan, had he known, he would never have crucified the Lord of glory? But God, but God being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. Made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in heavenly places so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable richness of his grace and kindness towards us. In Christ Jesus, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not of yourselves, it's not your own doing, it is a gift of God, not as a result of works, so that none of us have anything to boast in. You see, Adam and Eve began to die physically, and then they died spiritually. And because of the death and the resurrection of Jesus, because he is alive, he now has the power, and he's done it in your life, he's done it in my life, he has quickened us. Paul describes the, resur- the, the, the new birth. Paul describes being born again. Paul describes being saved here as a resurrection from death to life. And if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, if you believe in Jesus, you have gone from death to life through the working of the Spirit of God because of what Jesus did on the cross because of his death and his resurrection. He is now causing people all over this planet every single day to go from death to life. Jesus walked out of that grave and he, and, he, and he changed the world, fundamentally changed the world. People began to be saved. People began to come to life. The dead were raised. And you've experienced that. And it's because of the resurrection of Christ, because of the death and the resurrection of Christ. And Satan hates it. Satan hates it. He is the one who had the power of death. And Satan defeated him. But not only that, those of us who know Christ one day will experience a physical resurrection. If you're in Ephesians, just keep on going to get to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. One of the greatest passages of Scripture, so encouraging. 
not only do we experience a spiritual resurrection that brings us back into fellowship and intimate connection with God, we become children of God through the working of the Spirit of God in our lives, but one day we will experience a physical resurrection. Paul says to the Thessalonians, we don't want you to be uninformed, brothers and sisters, about those who are asleep, so that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. For we declare to you by the word of the Lord that we who are alive, who are left, until the coming of the Lord will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of the archangel, with the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, comfort one another with these works. You see, with these words, you see, what Jesus did on the cross is he defeated death. That's why John Owen wrote that such that wonderful book back in the 1500s, The Death of Death in the Death of Christ. When Jesus died, death died. We just sang that. And you know that you will be one day physically raised to life again. You will, you will receive a glorious body like Christ's glorious body, as Paul told the Philippians. You know that to be true because you've experienced the first fruits of that. You've been born again by the Spirit of God. You have been quickened. You have been made alive by Christ, saved by grace. The third thing is that Jesus reversed Babel. Just as through sin, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, so death spread to all men. You need to go back to Genesis again and think about this. In the garden, God gave Adam and Eve a mandate. And what was that mandate? It was be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it for my glory. So go get busy. Go, go and do what I'm calling you to do. What did they do? They rebelled against God. But here's the interesting thing. God started again. He flooded the earth because of the wickedness of man. Noah and his family survived. And what did God tell Noah in Genesis chapter 9 after they came out of the ark? He says exactly the same thing. Even with the presence of sin, he says, go, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth. Implicitly to my glory. We get to Genesis chapter 11 and what do we read? So interesting. Genesis chapter 11, mankind rebelling against God's mandate. Let's build a tower, lest we be dispersed over the face of the earth. Let's consolidate. Let's stay together. Let's do exactly what God has told us. Let's do the exact opposite of what God has told us to do. Stay together. Consolidate. Again, they reject the mandate of God to humanity. So to stop this rebellion, what does God do? Genesis eleven seven. let us confuse their language so that they may not understand one another's speech. This linguistic confusion caused the 70 nations of Genesis chapter 10 to be dispersed, to spread out, to cover the earth. And what does God do in Genesis chapter 12? Immediately, he begins to create a nation of his own. He calls Abraham. And he calls Abraham to fulfill locally what God had intended to happen globally. 
A nation that would in a small way fulfill the mandate that God had intended for the world. Abraham was called to be fruitful. And miraculously he was, and his children were. And they multiplied, and they filled a promised land and subdued it for the glory of God. The other 70 nations, they were left under the severe malevolent dominance of, of other gods. While Israel was God's chosen, special, precious nation. And so for millennia, these nations sat in darkness, worshiping false gods. And the, and the prophets kept saying, one day a Messiah is coming. One day he will come and save the nations. One day the promise is that all of the nations will be blessed in Abraham and his seed. And then the Messiah came. And he lived and he died and he rose again and he ascended to heaven. And we read about the, the welcome that he received in heaven in, in Daniel chapter 7. And I want you to turn there if you have your Bibles. Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 and 14 speak about Christ's welcome back before the ancient of days. After he had finished his work, after he had yielded up his spirit, I believe this is what Daniel saw. Jesus being welcomed back into heaven. I saw in the night visions, verse 13, and behold with the clouds of heaven... There came one like the Son of Man, and he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him, and to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all the peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion, his kingdom is an everlasting kingdom which will not pass away, and his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. So God's agenda in Christ moved from being local and national to being international. So how did God move that agenda forward? What was it that God did? Just 10 days after Christ's ascension into heaven, something spectacular happened. God sent his Holy Spirit and he undid the effects of Babel. People heard the gospel in their own language. People from all over the civilized world, people from what is modern day Iran and Iraq, all through North Africa, through Central and Western Europe, were in Jerusalem that day. And suddenly they heard the gospel. They heard the message of the risen Christ in their own language. This unifying message of truth that, that, in, that the entire population of the universe is supposed to focus upon. This message, this unifying message of the death, the resurrection, and the ascension, and the reign of Christ began to capture their hearts, and they were transformed. Whereas before this, the agenda, the plan of God had been national, it had been local, it had been geographically localized, ethnically defined, and now in Christ it is transformed. It is international, it is multicultural, it is multi-ethnic, it is multilingual. And that's why at the end, before Jesus went to heaven, he sat down with his disciples and he said to them, listen guys, all authority in heaven and on earth is now mine. All authority. I have defeated the God of this world. I have put him in his place. I have made a public spectacle of him at the cross. I've taken his power and his authority. Now all authority in heaven and on earth is mine. And therefore I want you to do this. I want you to go. 
I want you to do what I told Adam and Eve to do. I want you to go and do what I told Noah and his children to do. I want you to go and do exactly what the nations back in Genesis chapter 11 refused to do. I want you to go and share the good news and make disciples of all nations. We read in Revelation about what heaven is going to be like. People around the throne of God from every tribe and tongue and nation and language representing every corner of the planet. And if there's one thing that Easter tells us and forces us to contend with, it's this. That God's agenda is international. He's called us to go to the nations. And he has given us the power now, the gospel of Christ, to go into those dark places that are still under the influence of Satan and his demons and go and preach a message that they have no antidote for, they have no answer to, they have no defense against. And that message is this, that Jesus lived, died, and rose again, that he is the Son of God and that salvation is possible simply by trusting in him. You see, when we take that message to the world, we are fulfilling the Great Commission. We are fulfilling the dominion mandate. We are doing what God told our forefathers in the garden to do. Be fruitful, multiply, and fill the earth to the glory and the honor of God. Jesus told a parable quite regularly. Actually, it's in all the synoptics parable about the strong man and he said essentially this just a little phrase he says you can't go into a strong man's house and plunder his house before you do that you first have to bind him first have to bind him that's what Jesus did at the cross Satan is not in control Jesus is the God of this world was defeated that day by Jesus Jesus is the King of kings and the Lord of lords, and nothing can stop him. Jesus said, I will build my church, and the power of hell, the gates of hell, meant to keep people in, keep them in darkness, keep them in confusion. The gates of hell cannot stop the forward advance of the church of Jesus Christ. And so as we leave this Easter service in a few minutes, we think about the implications we think about the fact that Jesus has dealt with sin and brought us back into relationship with God. He has dealt with death and quickened us and one day will give us brand new bodies. And he has given us a mandate. He has given us a commission. And that is simply go and tell the message. The one unifying, glorious message of the gospel that brings people together, that brings unity and harmony in families, unity and harmony in love and communities, the one thing that fundamentally transforms people from the inside out. Go and share Jesus. Share the gospel. Jesus, the last words that he said is, Father, it's done. It is finished. It's over. And then he said, into your hands do I commit my spirit. And he died knowing that he had defeated the enemy. And so I want to commission you as you leave here today to go into this world victorious because Jesus and the gospel 
cannot be stopped. Let it be in your mouth. Speak the truth. Share Jesus. Pray for opportunities to share the gospel and anticipate that God will take the same message that quickened and alivened and resurrected you and will use it in the lives of people that you're praying for and sharing with to do exactly the same thing. He's been doing it for 2,000 years. He might do it for another 2,000 years, but let him use you to take this message to our broken, desperately needy world. Amen? Let's pray together. Father, I just thank you for the cross. I thank you for what it is that your son accomplished there that day. I thank you that he made a public spectacle of Satan, defeating and triumphing over him. I thank you, Lord, that he defeated the power of sin, defeated the power of death. And now he has given us a calling, a mission, to go and take this message of life and hope message of salvation and reconciliation to God and man into our world. And so I pray, Father, that you would use us this coming year. Let us always be excited about the resurrection. Let us always be on our lips. Let us always be talking about Jesus and his gospel. And use us, I pray, to win lost people, dead people, to the Savior we ask in Jesus' name. 